Radio. Theology of the Body, a first look. A talk by Anna Crone at the Immaculata Mission School 2015, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Um, it's great that you do know a little bit about Theology of the Body, um, although I have to say that I've been working in the area of Theology of the Body for many years now, and I must say I learn, everything, some, I learn something new every time I give a talk. So um, I, want to, I want to give you, a, first of all, we have got a session this morning, just to give you an introduction, and then in the second session, I want to go a little bit more deeply into Theology of the Body, and also to exp- try and connect it to some of our own experiences as well. So what are we doing today? I've put up a picture here today of a saint. I'm really happy to be surrounded by the pictures of the icons of these beautiful saints because each one of these saints actually teaches us a theology of the body. And I'm going to explain what that is in a second. But a special saint for today is a Dominican saint, a saint um, of the order of preachers. Um, The Dominicans wear a white habit, a bit like some of those friars that we've seen today. They're Paul the Hermit, right? Yep. Paul the Hermit Friars wear white habits, so the Dominicans. And they had a special vocation to preach the truth. In an age where there was a movement in Europe that hated the body, that thought that the body was the cause of all evil. They were called the Cathars. And they said, look, the world's going to blazes in a, in a handcart. And what's causing the problem is the passions of our body. That's what the problem is. If we can deny our body and put our body into shape, then we'll be pure spirits. Now, what we call that, can anyone tell me what we call that idea? You can put it in your own words too. Do you reckon it's true that our body is the source of all evil? No. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, what we call a false idea that's got a little bit of truth. The body is, tr- is troubling and mysterious, isn't it? Having a body and being a body and having sexual desires is mysterious. It's not, sometimes it can be difficult to understand. And when people try to come up with an account that sorts it out, but it's, a, it's, it's incorrect, we call it a heresy. In other words, it's partly true, but it's mostly wrong. And therefore, the Dominican order was started to preach the gospel to help people see the beauty of the incarnation. In other words, that Jesus himself was God-made flesh, God-made human body. And therefore, there's something consecrated and special about the human person and about the human body to remind us when we forget now, the man whose feast day it is today is Raymond of Penafort. He was born in Barcelona, and he was drawn to this order. He saw the importance of this message, of returning to the gospel and of getting on the road and going out and telling people this, this great good news. Raymond of Penafort um, became a person who the Pope trusted a great deal, and the Pope gave him the mission of sorting out the canon law of the church as my husband and I were saying today when we were thinking about him, it's like asking someone to go into an enormous room with thousands of bits of paper and saying, I trust you, I'm the Pope, go and sort it. And he did. And so his teaching on things like marriage and um, 
religious orders and so on in the church. These are the regulation the church uses called canon law, special rules within the church to, to help keep issues just and peaceful. Became, he became, his work made a major, major contribution to that. He was also a very humble man and he wanted to, to speak to people of other faiths. So he started an institute, can we believe this, in about 1230 to go and preach to the Jews and to the Muslims. And it was because he had such a love of brothers in other faiths and wanted to bring them to the gospel that he asked St. Thomas Aquinas to write a very important document called Con, uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, a, a, a message to those of the other faiths, the Gentiles, those outside the church. He lived, uh, Raymond lived to 100. Can you imagine that? So he's this old guy who lived to 100 and he was very, very, um, several times the Pope wanted to make him an Archbishop of various Spanish towns, but he said, no, no, I'm just, I'm a humble friar, just let me do my study. And he had many instances where he had to battle with the secular authorities over one secular authority, the king of um, one part of Spain was keeping a mistress and he had to, and Raymond went and said, actually, this is the wrong thing to do. And Raymond said, you're not allowed to take him off the island. He was on Mallorca, the island of Mallorca. And the king said, I'll punish anyone who takes Raymond off the island. And there's a story that Raymond said, okay, I'm going back to Spain. So he got his kappa, his cloak, and put it on the ocean and prayed. And he sailed back to Spain on his kappa, using it as a sail. Now, that would be pretty cool to see. And apparently the king said, that is so amazing. I'm really sorry. I'm in the wrong. <laughs> So Raymond of Kappa, so let's ask Raymond to help us today because to, he would have appreciated the theology of the body and I think he would be someone who would care about some of the concerns we have today so many centuries later. Um, a great man, Raymond of Penafort. So Raymond of Penafort, born in Barcelona and he died in Barcelona. So a Spanish saint. So what are we doing today? Well, I hope we can get, even though some of us have heard a little bit about theology of the body, that we will be able to get a deeper understanding of what it's about. And good luck with that because I'm still going with it. So, And it does keep you very humble teaching on theology of the body because there's more and always more and more to know. And also to help us reflect on how theology of the body helps us with our own personal call, our personal vocation, because it is part of our vocation, both in our lives and what we are witnessing to people around us. So it is actually a very important way of us preaching and witnessing to the gospel. Now, I want to start where theology of the body starts, and that is with human experience. And I want you to think now, what is it, what is the hope in your heart because theology of the body is also a theology of the heart, which is my area. So what is in our heart? What is the hope in our heart? So think, you don't have to tell anyone. Just have a little minute of thinking, what is the great hope? What is your great hope? What is the hope you have in your heart? And I think the two prayer prayer hymns we were singing really capture some of that beautifully, some of the things we want, approval, we want to be told we're beautiful, 
we want to be affirmed, we want to be loved. And these are some of the questions. This is the starting point for theology of the body. Let's put some up. And I'm using some special words here. Who here wants to find true love? Hands up. Anyone? Can, oh, better still, who doesn't want to find true love? Anyone want fake love, cheap love, uh, passing love, unrequited love? No? Sure? Okay. So the starting point of theology of the body is the hope for true and what is called fair love, beautiful love. True love, beautiful love, fair love. Fair love is a term that St. John Paul II uses, fair love. It's a really lovely word. It reminds us sometimes of fairy stories. You are the fairest in the land, the most beautiful. But in John Paul's understanding, fair means true beauty, inner beauty, beauty of character, beauty of soul. How many people here want to find faithful relationships? That can be your friendships, starting with your friendships, faithful relationships in your family. Everybody? Yeah, I think that's pretty universal, isn't it? We don't say, I want a fake relationship. I want an abusive relationship. We don't say that, do we? I don't think there's anyone on the planet who really wants an abusive relationship, an unfaithful relationship. Even though people are in unfaithful relationships, they don't want them. How many people want someone to make a lifelong commitment to them and say, I'm with you to the end? Who wants that? This is a bit scarier, isn't it? This is a little bit scarier. This is like taking that big V word, vows. <laughs> Promises. Scarier, but who secretly would love to have someone stay with them or some life commitment that really challenges them and helps them give themselves? Scary? Your parents have made a lifelong commitment to you, yeah? They don't say, okay, I've been your mother now for 20 years. It's time to stop. <laughs> right? Some of our best and our deepest relationships are those ones where we go to the end. To the end. Yeah? I'm with you to the end. To death, beyond death. So long, lifelong commitments. Who wants to have dignity, to have the dignity of being a woman and the equal dignity of being a man. Who wants that? Yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty out there, isn't it? It's pretty high on everyone's list. And hardest of all, who wants to have fulfilling, integrated sexuality? And I don't mean, very important here to remember, sex is not principally a verb. It's a noun. It's to do with your identity who you are, how you love. It's not doing the stuff that people, you know, people are obsessed with doing, but this is about being. So who wants to be integrated in themselves, fulfilled in themselves, yeah, as a man or as a woman? That's what I mean. Yeah, everybody? Yep. 
And who wants to be able to see their body with dignity and to be treated with dignity? Especially their physical selves. Even when you get old. Even when you're a child. These are the great desires of the human heart. And you know what? They're true. They are true. One of the great hymns that you were singing before was saying how people tell us it's not true. People have given up hope. It's not that they've given up the dream. They've given up hoping in this dream. Because even when I've been to really rugged schools and I've asked young people these questions, they all say, we want this, but we can never get it. It's not possible. It doesn't happen. It's a fairy story. Or alternatively, they say, I've been so messed up by my experiences that I'm not good enough to get this. And you know what the gospel is saying? Just as Raymond of Penefeth and the Dominicans wanted to say, yes, you are. You are loved enough. This is what you are. This is what you're made for. This is not an idle dream. It's a hard dream. It requires some struggle and some effort and it requires tons and tons of grace. With God's help, this is what we're made for. Okay. Now, that's our Christian message to speak to the heart, to the deepest desires of the human heart. And this is part of what theology of the body is trying to do. But unfortunately, we live in a culture where there are two very, very different strands, at least, of versions of this story. And I want to tell you the story of those two stories. In the 1950s, long before any of you were born, and probably even before your parents were born, I wasn't in the 1950s either, I can say, but there was, uh, after the war, just imagine this, after the First Second World War, the world was disrupted. People were looking for a new life. And they didn't want to go back to the way life had been prior to the war. And many people said the way to liberation, the way to peace is modernity, modern stuff, rockets, aluminium, new fridges, whatever. But we also have to be new kinds of people. I don't know if any of you watched that series called Mad Men. Um, That's set in the 1960s. It, It captures very well this idea to make the world a new place. And two people wanted to do that. Two authors, two writers wanted to do that. One author had been a scientist and he was studying insects and he started to study, get this, the sexual organs of insects. Really great study plan. The gall wasp, in fact, he studied. And he said, really, we're just like insects. What all this mythology about morality and sexuality is a big mistake. The other author said, now hang on a second. We have to study the whole person, not just bits of the person. That's important to know how medicine works, to know how our organs, you know, where they fit in. Good science is good science, but the ultimate questions are deeper than science. Okay? Two authors. One said it's all about sexual excitement. 
because I've been studied gall wasps and I know. The other guy said, no, the answer is love. Human love is what integrates our bodies, our hearts, our emotions, our feelings. That's the answer. First author said one of the big problems is that people have disconnected their sexual lives, their physical selves, their bodies from God. They think God's anti this stuff. But then he's not. God is intricate. He made us this way. So he's made us this way for a reason, and that's very important. The second author said there's no link between morality and sexuality. It's just something you do. We're very much like animals. Animals just do it out of instinct. We should return to looking at ourselves as animals. So he rejected the link between morality, sexuality, and what we do. This was the basis of what's called the sexual revolution. In other words, people began to say, I don't have to be faithful to my wife. Because really what it's all about is excitement. I don't have to wait till marriage because I've got to try my equipment out before I do that. I'm just a machine, really. This, in the meantime, author number one said, human experience is really important, but the values that we go after are equally important. Second order said, really, the only thing that matters is the high, the peak experience, how intense the sexual response is. And the second author said, no, no, it's the deep stuff that matters. The de- Remember I talked about those desires in our hearts. That's the really important, that's where the truth is. Okay. Do you know who the two authors are? Who's author A? Both born at the same, roughly the same time, both interested in human relationships, both interested in sexuality, both wanting to get a good message out. Who's, who's author number one? JP2, very good. Who's author number two? Freud, no, close. He's a man who inspired a whole series of books on sexuality. Unfortunately, his books got into religious orders. Let me get... Let's give you a bit more information. He began to study the deviation of sexuality. He said there's nothing, you know, deviation is fun if you get a lot of excitement out of it. You can like little kids. He experimented with children. There was a movie made about him. So who do we believe? Let's have a look. Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey inspired a son of a Methodist minister who started Playboy magazine. Hugh Hefner. Alfred Kinsey's studies influenced a young kid from the Midwest whose dad was a very proper Methodist minister. He believed the story of Alfred Kinsey. So what I'm saying to you today is we have some choices here about who we believe. Which story are we going to believe? Kinsey's story, and look, heck, most of the TV series are based on assumptions that Kinsey drew together from Freud and other writers. Not even Freud believed what Kinsey believed. Kinsey became a very strange man towards his death. He was a sadomasochist. 
He used sexual abusers to experiment with children. Um, people still consider him the hero of the sexual revolution. He was an abuser. Very disturbed man. And yet, which one is more influential? Sadly, Kinsey's, every time you walk past an adult sex shop, think of Alfred Kinsey. It's all about excitement. I always go past and say, it's not about an adult centre, it's about men behaving like children or women behaving like animals. It's not about being a true human person. So this mythology, we have two mythology, we have two stories presented to us at least today. One, the message that this incredible message of John Paul II, which is what we're going to talk about today. And the other is the message of what we call secular sexuality, the, the, the idea that sex is just experience, it's just excitement, really we're just animals, we have needs. You hear that one? I have needs. Have you ever been on a date? I've got a need. What? You've got to eat? <laughs> John Paul II says... Sexuality is deeper than a need. It's a gift. If someone says, I've got a need, you've got to help me fulfill that need, forget it. It's like saying, you've got to give me a present. It's a very, very pathetic thing to say. So let's just, two different, there's a very different way, and, and it influences our behaviour, doesn't it? it? Each of those stories gives us a different way of seeing ourselves. So Alfred Kinsey and Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II. Alfred, there was a movie made about Alfred Kinsey. I haven't seen it, but he's still considered a hero. I think he's a very sad, misguided man, but his influence has been diabolical. Sorry? There's also lots of movies on John Paul II. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's actually more movies on John Paul than there is on Alfred Kinsey, which is interesting. So, who was the author of this work we call Theology of the Body? And I'll just introduce you to the body of the work. This is the text of what inspired and is still developing as Theology of the Body. It's a series of audience talks that Pope John Paul gave in, um, over a number of years, from 1979 onwards, and he gave it as part of his Wednesday audiences. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So it's just a short series. Each one is a short talk, very deep talk, which Pope John Paul II gave to St. Peter's Square. What's interesting about that, do you think? Alfred Kinsey didn't stand in um, Grand Central Station and say, I'm going to give you a talk about my ideas on sexuality. What's something about giving an audience that's unlike other works? Has anyone been to St. Peter's Square? been to a, a, a public audience. So what happens? Pope comes out on a balcony and he speaks to everybody there, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. He speaks to whoever's there. Nobody pays for it. It's really to the world. It's accessible. People can stand there recording it on their phone. So John Paul gave this to the world. That's what's significant about it. He didn't write it as... He didn't write it as a book to start with. It was only later on that it was put into this book. There's over 179 of these audiences. So you can see why I say it takes a long time 
It takes a long time to even understand it, but it takes a long time to actually master it. Nobody's actually a master of it. But John Paul wasn't inventing new stuff. He was, he was right. He wanted to bring together. He said, we've forgotten the Christian story. We've forgotten what Jesus has told us. So what he does is he goes back and tells the story. What did the, the words of the hymn say? From the beginning, when we said, glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning. John Paul says, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning because we've forgotten this story. Catholics as well. Christians as well. We've all forgotten it. So let's go back to the beginning. Who was he? Who was St. John Paul II? The church has recognised him as a saint. Who was he? <laughs> well, he was an amazing figure. An amazing figure in the 20th century of the church and a time when the church was in crisis. Uh, he was Polish, as you probably know. He was a Polish, he was a national hero in Poland. If you meet any jo person now who's Polish, you'll, they'll say, Pope John Paul II, that was, he was our hero. But he's also a hero of thousands and thousands and thousands of young people who encountered him at World Youth Day. He invented World Youth Day, that was his idea. He wanted the Pope to be able to meet young people. He said, look, the oldies have got some things mixed up. Let's go and talk to the young. So in a way, he was an incredible communicator. He was a th theologian. He was a pariti, which meant he advised the church during the Second Vatican Council. He was a playwright, a poet, an actor. And you can see some of those gifts of acting when he appeared. His sense of the dramatic, his sense of communication was incredible. He was an incredible philosopher, particularly writing about ethics, about what is right and wrong, what is the right way to behave, what is good for us to do. He was a man of action. There's great pictures of him skiing and swimming and doing all these sports. But more than that, and for our interest today, one of the things he did was he spoke to thousands and thousands of young people and especially to those people who were getting ready to get married. They came, thousands of people came to him with their problems. Quite often when I'm doing a talk on theology of the body, someone will say, what does an old celibate man know about sex? I love that question. Because I say he knows about the human heart and he knows from all those thousands of people that he spoke to the depth of that experience. He knows more than many married people do. He certainly knows more than playboys. Playboys don't know about sex. They don't know about love. They don't know about the human person because it's all on the surface. That's why they keep going back, I think, because I just keep thinking, there's got to be more to it than this. So John Paul II, by giving himself in service to the church and to us, had a profound insight, a wisdom into the human heart, into the human body and the experience of the person. But he was also a mystic. He had a great deep, deep love and a mystical level, a deep, deep level, an intimacy with God that originally called him to want to be a Carmelite priest, to be a contemplative. 
And his bishop said, no, you've got too much to offer the world. You can't be, go into a monastery and hide away. And he said, but my heart wants to go and serve Jesus Christ in an intimate relationship, one-on-one. He kept that desire all the way through his vocation and people who have said they saw him praying, so he would just go into another zone when he was praying. He would go into another place. Quickly, he was born in 1920. He was one of three children. His parents were Edmund and Olga. He studied at the university. How many people here at university? Yep, he studied at university like you. He wanted to study drama and literature. But he was at university at the time when the Nazis were controlling the universities and they didn't believe in free speech, they didn't believe in free study. So the university, they didn't want Poles getting, a, getting above themselves. So they shut the universities down and John Paul went to work in a quarry. He went to work with his hands. He nearly he got hit by a, tr- a lorry once. He went to work in a chemical factory. And during this time, he wrote some amazing poems about work with your hands. I think he meditated on the place of the body a lot while he was lifting rocks and feeling the sun hot on his back. So when people say, what does he know about the body? I feel like saying, have you worked in a quarry? If you want to know that you've got a body, go and work in a quarry. Okay. In his middle years, he felt the call to priesthood. Originally, I think he thought he would be an actor, maybe get married. But instead of that, he felt this strong call to serve the church and he studied as a priest in secret because by that stage, the communists have taken over Poland and are trying to suppress the church. So he lived under two totalitarian governments who had no time for lived Christianity. He was ordained in 1946, just at the end of the war, but he was still in a communist country. He was still in a repressive regime. And he st- it was so clever that he, he went on to do his doctoral studies in Rome. He became the Bishop of Krakow. He was president of the Second Vatican Council. He gave speeches that influenced the way the church's teaching has developed. And he took Pope, John, Pope Paul VI on retreat. He was the Pope's retreat master in an amazing book called Sources of Renewal. So after the council, he said, the church needs to be renewed. We need to touch people's hearts. We need to talk to their experience because they've forgotten the story. So we already we were beginning to see what he was on about. But once again, his career took a different path and he became Pope. He took the name John Paul. First time a Pope had taken two names because he wanted to bring together his predecessor, predecessors, Pope John XXIII, Pope Paul VI, but also to bring the work of St. Paul and St. John the Evangelist and maybe John of the Cross, into his ministry. Incredible, incredible synthesizer. That means someone who brings things together. He became the pilgrim pope. He decided he wasn't going to stay inside the Vatican. He was going to travel all over the world, and now every pope who follows him is going, that John Paul too. <laughs> we have to get out on the road and preach. He, went, he made 104 pastoral visits outside Italy and 146 in Italy, 
He launched World Youth Day and many, many, many other things. He spoke at the UN. He did so many other extraordinary things. Interestingly, there was an assassination attempt against his life. I think last week the man who tried to assassinate him visited his tomb. Extraordinary story, all on its own. He laboured over 14 encyclicals. That is 14 really big teaching documents for the church. 15 apostolic letters. There were hundreds and hundreds of things he did. He started the revival of catechesis. He revived education. He taught about universities. He taught about morality. But in the meantime, he suffered Parkinson's disease. And you probably have all seen pictures of Pope John Paul struggling in his last years. And somebody has said quite rightly, some of his greatest teaching took place because of his love during his suffering. So he suffered very publicly. And in 2005, on the 2nd of April, uh, as Pope Benedict would later say, he returned to the house of his father. Extraordinary man. So he is the person who has started the ball rolling on theology of the body. And what are his themes? Let's have a look at them. The significance of Jesus Christ becoming incarnate. Do you know our Christian faith is a very bodily faith? You ever notice that? It's not an idea. You can't sort of go, I'm going to be good in my head. You have to act, don't you, in our faith? That's what's scary about Christianity. It's not an armchair science. You have to do stuff. A lot of people say, oh, you know, on Sundays I don't really go to Mass. I kind of just sit in my armchair and think about God. Now, that's great. It is really good to think about God. That's really important. But, and it's really great that people want to do that. But Christianity says we've got bodies and we've got to get, stand up, walk out the door, go into the church, genuflect, kneel and stand, be part of the body of Jesus Christ called the church, And do stuff with our bodies. And ultimately, what are we doing at Mass? What are we waiting for at Mass? What's Mass about? What's it about? And what's that? Receiving the body of Jesus Christ. The centre of our faith and our worship is not just prayers. They're great. But it's being fed becoming part of the body of Jesus Christ. Incredible. Can you see how important body is for our faith? In other words, we believe that Jesus didn't just want us to be in our heads Christians or hobby Christians. He wanted to put us to do what he did, which is to put his body on the line, or actually on the cross to show our love for the world and for God by putting our body on the cross out of love. No wonder people find that a hard message. But what John Paul says is that is the only way we'll ever fulfil those deep desires of our heart. So the incarnate word. Secondly, because of the way we are made and that we are made by a creator, The second message is, because of that, 
Christians hold human beings in huge dignity. That is why Christians are there with the dying, why they're there looking after little babies, why they go into war zones, why they go and help people with Ebola. Not just Christians, but that inspiration is because we believe no matter how sick or evil or difficult or broken people are, their message is, you are beautiful. You deserve love. You deserve respect. And your body deserves respect. And your sexual identity deserves respect. Second message. Third message, love. Human beings, are, John Paul says this, human beings are made for love and not use. We use machines. We use implements. But we do not use human persons. I might try a test. Who wants to be used? We want to be useful, don't we? That's different. I want to be useful. I want to have a purpose. That's a different question. But who wants to be used? Has anyone had that experience of being used where somebody friends you and then you go, oh, they only wanted that to get to this? Pretty painful, isn't it? Pretty painful experience. So John Paul touches on our instincts and says, I know you don't like being used. That's right. You need to be loved. And thirdly, this is a really deep theological point, that our bodies are the sacraments, the signs of who we are. What do I mean by that? This is the way I put it, my language. You're bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. Do you know what I mean? You're a mystery. You're a mystery. There's only one of you ever created in the whole history of the universe. Is anyone here an identical twin? Okay. <laughs> You're an identical twin, but you are not the same as your sister, are you? No way. She's your sister, but even though she's genetically very close to you, actually not identical because we continue genetically to develop differently from our, from our twin, she's come out of the same genetic, as an embryo, the little embryo split in half. Genetic blueprint is the same. Does that mean they're both the same person? No way, Jose. Try asking an identical twin that. They have a very, very special, very special identity with each other. They're very, they're, physically, it can be quite hard. I've got lots of young... I've got three sets of twi- identical twin friends, girls, young girls, and I have to go and go, okay, who's got the mole on that side? Who's got the glasses on that side? <laughs> <clears throat> but they are so, very, very different on the inside. So our, the way God has made us, our spiritual identity is wrapped up in a body and expressed through a body. It's what we call sacramental. You're a sign, your body is a sign of who you are. And in the Catholic teaching, we hold that to be such an important thing because we say, at the end of all things, when the kingdom of God is fulfilled, you will still look like you. You will have your bodies glorified. Our bodies are not just things like 
paper bags that we dispose of when we're finished. Our bodies, the way we look, we might look like our father or our mother, that family relationship will stay in heaven. So we will see our friends and know who they are, not because they're white beams of light. They will be human bodies but glorified, a bit like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? Do you think about that? Hopefully we won't have the little things that we struggle with, big hips, flat, I've got flat feet. Do you think I'm going to have flat feet in heaven? I don't think so. I think, I'm hoping I won't have flat feet in heaven. <laughs> so, um, so this is what the key themes are of theology of the body. Let's look at these, some of these other themes. The first one is that the word became flesh. So here's a little teaching that John Paul talked about many times. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on life. Christ, the final Adam, by revealing the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself. In other words, we can only really find ourselves when we unite our search with the glorious human person, human man, the human man, he's not a human person, he's a divine person, Jesus Christ. So God actually became a person, human per- became a human being to show us how to be human beings, to help us be who we should really be. First thing, love. Love, and John Paul writes in his very first encyclical. I remember I was teaching in a school when this encyclical came out and it blew my mind. I read this and went, oh my goodness, something's about to happen. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, he does not participate intimately in it. Such an important key to John Paul's ministry. In other words, let's see if this little, little thing will work. Laser? No. Oh, there it is. Let's have a look at some of the things John Paul wanted to do in Theology of the Body. He wanted people to encounter love. He wanted them to experience it, to own it, to participate intimately in it. How is that different, perhaps, from the way the church had been teaching just a little bit before, do you think? Does anyone sort of know what was going on a little bit earlier in the church? What was happening? How do people learn their faith? <clears throat> anyone know? They were doing really good things, like they were learning the catechism. They were learning the content of the faith. That was really important. But it's not just about pouring content into our head, is it? And the sisters here who are a part of a new movement in the church are taking that message very seriously. They're not just going out saying, I've got to teach you the truth. You've got to listen to me. They say, we want you to encounter it, to experience it, to intimately participate in it. That's why you're on retreat, so you can do that. That's a very much part of John Paul II's message to the church. Body, in fact, and it alone is capable of making visible what is invisible. Remember I talked about being bigger on the inside than on the outside. That's my 
rough way of trying to say this. The spiritual and the divine. It is created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden in since time immemorial in God. In other words, God is writing a story in each one of our lives. Some of it we can't see. He writes with invisible ink and visible ink. That's the way I like to think of it. He's got invisible ink and visible ink. And sometimes the most powerful language is in the invisible ink. We, this is part of what John Paul is telling us. He also wanted us to see that there were mistaken ideas about the human person. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. So look, let's see what theology of the body. Let's give it a definition. It's a catechesis. It's a teaching on the bodily dimensions of human personhood, sexuality, marriage, in the light of the Bible. John Paul's saying, hey, Catholics, go back and read your Bible because it's all there. What Jesus has to tell us about the body, he tells us about by pointing to certain texts in the Bible. So this is also a biblical revival. It's a revival of the word of God, not just in Jesus Christ, but in the Bible itself. And as a result, many other Christians have joined the journey on theology of the body and going, hey, fantastic, we get to read the Bible with Catholics who don't usually know where the verses for anything are and don't know where numbers are in the Bible or things like that. So it's partly a revival of biblical studies as well. And I, 170, I said it's 130, I said 172. There's extra ones, but 133 single Wednesday catechesis. He saw this, John Paul saw this as part of an evangelization. One writer has called the theology of the body a time bomb that's going to go off in the future. It's already started to go off. John Paul says, let's go back to the beginning. Now remember I talked about him wanting to connect with our experiences, not just give us an idea, but to talk about how we experience the world. Well, he uses the language of experience to open up his theology of the body. He says, we need to go back to the beginning, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, and connect to what he calls original experiences. And he calls these a number of different experiences. We're going to unpack these. Original solitude, the desire to go out to another person, what Pope Benedict calls the exodus to the other, the lovely image of going out on an adventure like Abraham and Moses to find the other person. And lastly, the experience of nakedness. So these are the starting points of his theology of the body. These are the experiences we all have in which God reveals his truth to us. And he uses the word theology because he says the word, the logos, the truth, is written into the human body and the human experiences of the body. Word, meaning and truth. God writes in us his story, his truth, his word, his message, his meaning. John Paul says, the word became flesh and the body entered into theology by the front door. There's nothing about the body that is not precious to the human person, to, to Christianity. Okay. 
he wants to look at the human person from the beginning. And he says there's a whole lot of dimensions of the human person that are important. Mind, the heart, the body, history, where we've come from, how we act. These are all big things in John Paul II's teaching. And we're going to quickly skim over these. How are we going for time? Let's have a 15-minute break because I can see everybody's eyes starting to glaze over. That was Anna Crone with Theology of the Body, a first look. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.